Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. Thank you guys for tuning in. My guest today is Steve Call. He is the author of a new book about the wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan and the CIA's role. He's also someone who probably knows more about the region than anyone else in academia or journalism. And so, you know, we talked about the effort to use drones to take out terrorists. We talked about troop levels in Afghanistan, but we started with the challenge that stems from Pakistan and their destabilizing role in the region and their nuclear weapons program, which increases the risk and threat from everything we do there. So I hope you'll enjoy the interview, and I think you will enjoy his books if you want to learn more. My guest today on Pod Save the World is Steve Call. He's the author of Directorate S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, That book is really almost a sequel to a fantastic book called Ghost Wars, which came out several years ago. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker and the dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. Steve, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm going to start you off with a light question, a light, easy pop quiz. How many nuclear weapons do we think Pakistan has? More than 100. And More than 100. I think one problem with that program, which has been around since the 1980s, is that they have moved in recent years toward what are called tactical nuclear weapons, mm-hmm. meaning smaller yield, more portable weapons that might be used on the battlefield or at least might be constructed to convince India that they might be used on the battlefield. So they're mm-hmm. the kind of weapons that are particularly dangerous if you're thinking about them from a counterterrorism perspective. Right. So they're not in a gigantic silo somewhere in the middle of nowhere. They're uh, smaller. So what I guess what really brings me to the next question is how secure do you think those weapons are? I mean, how worried are the national security officials you talk to for this book and for your job generally about these nuclear weapons falling into the hands of terrorists or rogue elements in Pakistan? I guess when you talk to people who specialize in nuclear weapons security, they they start with the question, well, how big is the attacking force? because your defenses depend on whether somebody's turning up with like a brigade or five guys in black masks. And so there's really no fence that could stop the kind of collapse, for example, of the Pakistan army or a civil war or something along those lines. Um, The Pakistanis are wary of our help in this area because they suspect that we might be looking to neutralize or identify where their weapons are. Are And so when we offer, for example, um, sophisticated knowledge about how to essentially put a lock on a nuclear weapon, they tend to be, yeah, thanks, we already know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they do have a relationship with China. They can take advice if they seek it. They always assure us that they got it. But I think we remain concerned in part because of just the broader question of Pakistan's long-term stability and the possibility that its security services might, in some scenario, um, split or or have somebody come up within the command authority who has a radical view of the world. Yeah. So I started with the pop quiz because the nuclear pop quiz, everyone's favorite kind of pop quiz, because 
the little public discussion about Afghanistan that occurs in this country, it usually revolves around troop levels and fighting the Taliban or al-Qaeda or ISIS. But do you think we'd be in Afghanistan if not for the risk that is seen in Pakistan's nuclear arsenal? I think probably not. Um, And I think the challenge of Pakistan's stability and the role of its nuclear weapons in um, both deterring us from taking direct action that might destabilize the country further and and as a reason to try to stabilize the region. You know, it wasn't described in public very often as a core element of the war because it's such a sensitive subject. Pakistanis hate for us to talk about their nuclear program. But I think in the decision-making, it, it was always there. Yeah, so you, and you mentioned something there. It's like, There is a constant concern about what we do or what we say across the border. How much do you think that concern about the Pakistani response has hamstrung us in our policy goals over time? Well, we've had trouble building a deep understanding with their leadership based on trust and based on honesty. Um, It's just been a struggle. And this is not the first phase of our relationship where we've um, declared that we're allies, but then not conducted ourselves uh, with transparency or or trust on on either side. Mm-hmm. And you know, there was during the Obama administration in 2010 um, a very serious effort to try to have an honest conversation with them about big picture questions of strategy and and interests. Mm-hmm. And that was probably as close in the modern era era as the Pakistanis have come to answering our basic question, like, what do you want to get you to change your conduct um, in relation to these Islamist militant clients that are causing us so much grief and mm-hmm. the region so much instability? And, you know, there's this there's this scene in the book where the leader of the Pakistan army, Ashfaq Kayani, who was also a former ISI director of the Pakistani intelligence service, you know, he writes a series of papers into the National Security Council. The first one's very bland and looks like it just was written by the foreign ministry, kind of just talking points. Second one goes a little farther. And the third one, which, uh, you know, Doug Lute, who led the Afghan-Pakistan policy at the National Security Council at that time, he called it Kayani 3.0. It was, you know, it was pretty specific um, and a little bit bracing Mm -hmm. for the Americans to read because it was – Essentially, you say, what do we want in order to be uh, to have a different kind of relationship and maybe pursue different policies? We would want a free trade agreement. We would like the civilian nuclear deal that you gave to India. We want help with our energy deficits. We want to negotiate more successfully with India for access to water. And you know, I think the specialists took that paper in and they said, well, I'm not sure we can do this. I mean, this is politically a big stretch. But it was at least a, an exchange about what's really at issue for Pakistan. Then, of course, we got to 2011 and the whole relationship fell apart uh, because of Raymond Davis and the killing of Osama bin Laden and so on. I want to ask you a, a little more about the Pakistani leadership in that sort of double game you talked about. But let's talk about Ray Davis for a minute because I, I was actually in the White House at the time. Can you tell that story of who Ray Davis was and what he did and why that was such a disaster for U.S.-Pakistani relations? 
Yeah, so he was uh, he had a career in in special forces and and intelligence and had been abroad for some time. But when he comes into the picture in Pakistan in early 2011, he's working as a contractor for the CIA at their base in Lahore, Pakistan, which is in the heart of the Punjab, closer to India than to Afghanistan. But it's an area that has these Kashmir-oriented militants and and terrorists, uh, including groups that had carried out the Mumbai attack. And the CIA had turned its attention to some of these groups. And And Raymond Davis's job was basically to go around and scout locations and to set up um, meetings for career CIA officers with their sources to make sure that those meetings were secure. And uh, so he was driving around Lahore, which is a very busy city, in his own vehicle uh, without – uh, anyone else in the car, and he had a pistol with him, and he had a bunch of burglars' equipment. Turned out, and uh, he was uh, apparently scouting some routes that he would use for other meetings. And he uh, saw a couple of guys on motorcycles behind him that looked as if they were preparing to rob him. In fact, they flashed the bore of a gun by his account at an intersection, and then he drove to the next intersection. He took his pistol out. And the guys pulled up alongside him on their motorcycle and again flashed their weapon to indicate that he he should you know cooperate with them. And he picked up his pistol and shot one of them dead mm-hmm. uh, through the windshield. And then the other one ran away and he got out of his vehicle, took a few paces and shot that guy dead in his back as he was fleeing. Then he took he calmly took out a digital camera or his phone and took pictures of the of his victims to indicate, I think, that they had been armed. And he got back in his car to try to get away. Well, now a mob gathered, tried to prevent him from leaving, followed him, and eventually he was arrested by the Pakistani police. And that set off a diplomatic crisis between the United States and Pakistan. Unfortunately, it got worse when uh, efforts were – a car was sent out to retrieve him and I believe that car struck and killed someone en route, right? Yeah, that was awful. The the CIA base, learning that he was trying to get away, sent a chase car out of the consulate – and uh, the driver jumped the median strip to get away from some traffic, I guess, and struck mm-hmm. a young uh, man on a motorcycle coming the other way, killed him. He was just a middle-class shop owner. Um, and uh, they, the, the chase car failed to reach Raymond Davis and return to the, to the consulate. But it was a really ugly, mm-hmm. an ugly day. And all of that was complicated, like so many future conversations with Pakistan by Osama bin Laden. Because there was now this CIA officer, contractor, scout, whatever you want to describe him as, sitting in a prison as a few officials in the U.S. government knew that this operation was being planned to get Osama bin Laden, right? I mean, why did they think it was so critical to get Ray Davis out before taking any actions against bin Laden? Well, they thought there might be retaliation against him if they did um, strike inside Pakistan without asking permission. You know, there was also a question of who knew what about what. I don't think anyone believed that Raymond Davis knew anything about the surveillance operation. But, you know, there'd been a lot of a lot of work done to try to assess this house in Abbottabad um, by CIA station in Islamabad. And so, you know, it was just it was not plausible to carry out this strike while he was in prison if you you know if you were concerned about his welfare for sure i think yeah. that was the main concern yeah so uh eventually we got him out but it took an enormous amount of diplomatic effort and there was an enormous cost to relations between the US and the Pakistanis but i think that story sort of i think helps paint a broader picture about 
the relations we have with the Pakistani intelligence service. I mean, the book is named Directorate S, which is the covert action arm of the ISI or the Inter-Service Intelligence Agency, which is the Pakistani intelligence service. I think they epitomize that sort of fraught, confusing relationship we have in the region. On the one hand, they've been a critical partner in our counterterrorism efforts. They have access to places we don't get to. They can penetrate, pay off whatever terrorist networks that we can't. But they also support terrorist groups that are working to destabilize Afghanistan. We spy on them. They spy on us. Can you explain a bit of that fraught relationship and and the double game the ISI plays and how we manage that? Yeah, I mean, it goes back, you described it very well. I mean, it it goes back to the 1980s when we were collaborators in that kind of business against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. So it was the partnership um, among the CIA, the Saudi uh, intelligence service and the royal family and ISI that funneled all this money and weaponry to the Afghan Mujahideen who were fighting the Soviet forces. And that was when ISI grew into a much larger and more corrosive institution in Pakistan. And its covert action arm also really seized upon this strategy of using radical Islamist militias as clients in order to challenge uh, first the Soviets, but then later in Kashmir, India. And so we left after the Soviets left, more or less, and ISI continued. And the Taliban became their principal client during the 1990s as the Taliban, in the midst of a terrible civil war, kind of swept as the purifying uh, movement to, to end the war and took power and mm-hmm. by 1996 had taken Kabul and controlled most of the country. And ISI was their main patron. Um, it was it was barely clandestine. They, they ran all their supply lines and – and military uh, training and and supplies through Pakistan. And uh, so that's what we encountered on 9-11. The Taliban harbored al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda carried out the September 11th attacks. The Taliban didn't participate in those attacks, but they they were complicit because of the sanctuary they provided. And uh, when we came in, uh, we confronted an ISI that uh, had essentially nurtured the movement that harbored the killers of September 11th. So we had this very complicated history. And we said to ISI, you know, well, now you're going to have to switch sides and work with us. And they did so for a few years, especially against kind of foreign al-Qaeda that were inside Pakistan after they fled Afghanistan in 2001. They carried out Mm -hmm. some, you know, pretty significant arrests, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Ramzi bin al-Shib. But then, you know, we went off to fight a war in Iraq and they saw Afghanistan Uh, becoming a kind of post-American landscape again, and they went back to their old playbook. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR 
by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. You've covered this for so long. You understand these complexities so well. But the general public conversation about Afghanistan to the extent that there is one, uh, is about troop levels and drone strikes, as, as best I can tell. You know, there was all this breathless reporting when the U.S. dropped something called the mother of all bombs on a, you know, site in Afghanistan, when despite the fact that there was basically no strategic impact to that action. Do you think that lack of a complexity in the conversation about Afghanistan makes it harder for us to get this right? I mean, is, is the public debate preventing us from actually talking about the real problem across the border in Pakistan? Yeah, I think it is a, um, an impediment to a successful strategy. And the way it's playing out now is that, you know, there's this understandable but almost emotional hostility toward Pakistan that has built up inside the U.S. system, inside the Pentagon, inside the intelligence mm-hmm. services. And it's rooted in hard experience on the battlefield in Afghanistan, particularly after 2008 when you know, tens of thousands of American forces went out to try to, you know, change the equation on the ground in Afghanistan. And they were frustrated by uh, Taliban who were attacking them uh, with the, certainly from Pakistan with passive and active support from Pakistani uh, intelligence services and frontier corps troops. So, you know, Americans died. Americans were wounded by Taliban units that were clearly winning support from Pakistan. And that left 
a lot of the people in command furious at Pakistan. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and some of those people are now in the Trump administration. So H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, did you know, a couple of tours out there at the height of the war. Uh, James Mattis, the sec- secretary of defense, the same thing. And you know, it's not those two individuals, but it's all the colonels and lieutenant colonels and brigadier generals who, f- who fought that war. So because of Abbottabad and Osama bin Laden and because of this hard experience, there is a, a kind of a, an effort now to pressure Pakistan without really engaging with the reality that any right. stability, any reduction of violence in Afghanistan is going to have to include engagement with Pakistan. Yes, I, and I want to get to that, some of those policy decisions. But just first a question. I mean, you you wrote back in 2009 that our record of policy failure in the Afghan region, in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, should humble all of us. So here are some more recent humbling facts. Uh, in January, the BBC conducted a study that found the Taliban are openly active in fighting in 70% of Afghanistan. Uh, just today, the UN reported that more than 10,000 Afghan civilians were killed or wounded in violence last year. The security situation has deteriorated even in major cities like Kabul. Do you think that this 17-year-long U.S. effort in Afghanistan has served either U.S. interests in the region or the interests of the Afghan people in any way? It's hard to argue that it served U.S. interests in the region other than those that were at stake immediately after 9-11 when nobody knew if there was another attack coming and they were scared to death that al-Qaeda had another planning cycle underway and so they went to break them up with the initial war in Afghanistan. I think that was justifiable. A war justified out of ignorance but there was you know, also the shock mm-hmm. of the scale of the September 11 attacks and fear about what might be coming next. But other than that, it's hard to make that case. For the Afghan people, I think it's a little more complicated because we tend to think of Afghanistan in cliched terms as you know, a land of warring tribes and perpetual conflict. And, and that's, not, that's not right. In the century, Afghanistan was poor, but it was at peace with its neighbors. And internally, it had a pluralistic constitutional government and a, a multi-ethnic army that was you know, about the right size, 80,000 uh, soldiers to, for a country in its condition. And the, the suffering that Afghanistan has endured was caused by an outside invasion by the Soviet Union and then the escalation that ISI and the CIA participated in and the civil war and so forth. So after the Taliban fell, you know, Afghans came pouring home uh, to try to restore the country that the older among them still had living memory of. And, and they really counted on the international community. Now, the Bonn Agreement was really a remarkable thing and they – performed under it initially. Uh, they wrote their constitution based on the constitution they had in the 1960s. They staged a successful presidential election with high participation. They staged a successful parliamentary election. And uh, if we hadn't gone off to fight the war in Iraq, if we hadn't been so ideologically opposed to providing um, reconstruction assistance in that period, say 2002 to 2006, you know, they might have gotten um, the support from the international community that I think they deserved. Since then, um, you know, that government has fragmented. Um, there's still a big population in the cities that counts on the international community to forestall another civil war or, or the Taliban comeback. So it's kind of hard to argue that they should just be abandoned. But dropping bigger bombs on the Taliban in the countryside is clearly not going to change the war. Yeah. 
I mean, you report this out in the book, and it's also, you know, heard in almost every public declaration a policymaker makes about Afghanistan, which is that there is no purely military solution to this war, in particular against the Taliban. There has to be some sort of reconciliation process, a political solution, peace talks. And yet, this emphasis is on troop levels, taking out bad guys. I understand the frustration that probably everyone who's dealt with the Afghanistan policy feels about imperfect partners in Afghanistan, right? Right now, you have literal warlords serving in government. You have a, a literal mass murderer was the vice president. Longtime President Hamid Karzai was erratic and unstable. But like, what do you think the best way to, to increase the sort of softer assistance and the diplomatic effort we've put forward into Afghanistan that might have actually improved the situation and allowed us to deal with partners like those who are imperfect at best? Well, I think you have to bring the regional governments into the picture as much as possible. I mean, the Obama administration had a really difficult hand to play after inheriting the war in 2009, and particularly the problem that was more severe then than it is today was that Pakistan was falling apart. And the big project had to be to prevent Pakistan from collapsing. I mean, remember in 2009, the Pakistani Taliban at war with the Pakistani state were rocking Pakistani cities with car bombs. They were even attacking their paymasters at ISI. They blew up an ISI building in Lahore at one point. They came marching out of a region in the mountains called mm -hmm. Swat and people thought in the spring of 2009 they might enter into Islamabad. And this is a country, as we started talking about, that has nuclear weapons. Yeah. You don't want the Taliban in charge of it. And so yeah. an unintended consequence of the war in Afghanistan was the massive destabilization of Pakistan when al-Qaeda migrated across the border into Pakistan and hooked up with local groups that ISI had suckered over the years for its misguided foreign policy purposes. And so that Frankenstein monster just went on a rage uh, between 2007 and say roughly 2014 and uh, Pakistan endured the worst terrorism it's ever known. Now, they have gotten a grip on the country since then, the army, the security services. I mean, it's not um, without terrorism, but it is much better than it was during the Obama years. And uh, so there is an opportunity to go back to talking um, and not be quite so intimidated by Pakistan's own instability. Um, but the bigger picture is Everybody in the neighborhood wants to prevent another Afghan civil war. It's not in anybody's interest to see Afghanistan collapse again. China certainly doesn't want to see that. Central Asian republics to the north of Afghanistan don't want to see that. Iran does not want to see that. Pakistan, uh, though they're responsible for a lot of the trouble in Afghanistan, certainly don't want a civil war because they know that it will spill back into Pakistan. Um, so there is, in fact, enough of a common interest in stabilizing Afghanistan to undertake really active regional diplomacy. It's not going to be easy and there's no panacea, but that's what I think needs to be resourced. And the Taliban are part of the picture too. Talking to them, uh, having contact with them uh, is essential because you know they're going to come under pressure only if the governments that support them uh, decide that they want to change the, the, yeah. the equation. And that's where it gets very complicated. I mean, when it comes to talking to the Taliban, you start with who do we even call, <laughs> right? I mean, we literally yeah. the Obama administration literally tried to work with them to set up a Taliban office that could be used for these sorts of negotiations. But even getting to that point was fraught, right? 
Yeah. Well, they what, we had never really thought about talking to the Taliban uh, before the, the Obama administration. The Bush administration had a clear policy of treating the Taliban as if they were al-Qaeda, um, which I don't think made much sense looking at the facts and it certainly didn't make much sense in, in terms of having a strategy to complement military action with negotiations. So when the Obama administration came in, they appointed both at the National Security Council and at the State Department, you know, a cell essentially to try to figure out whether there was somebody to talk to. And the book describes how in the first really year, year plus, I mean, it was just about trying to figure out who's out there. And they, you know, the, and the British, you know, you yeah. thought maybe, well, maybe MI6 has some longstanding set of contacts. They didn't have any addresses. They didn't have any phone numbers. And eventually this guy surfaces. Um, there was a little bit of, as it turned out, turmoil in the Taliban leadership about who their political representative was going to be. And uh, they changed their their kind of chief negotiator and fundraiser and eventually made made it known first to the Germans uh, and then to the United States who uh, who we should talk to. And that guy was a young guy named Tayyip Aga in his 30s uh, who had a long history as a personal aide to Mullah Muhammad Omar, the emir of the Taliban. And uh, so we, we did eventually start talking to him. And I think achieving that political office, even though the, the negotiation was, you know, collapsed and, and was a failure – uh, and it was complicated by Hamid Karzai's not wanting it to happen and by ISI's role. But, you know, we did at least establish that there was a political wing of the Taliban and they still have that office in Qatar. People go talk to them, probably more Europeans than anybody else. Um, but if somebody wanted to get back to trying to uh, connect regional diplomacy with the Taliban's position in the war, at least now there's an, there's an address. Yeah. Any talks with the U.S., the Afghans, the Pakistanis, and the Taliban are going to be uh, complicated, right? No, no harm in trying. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. If you'd ask anyone on President Trump's senior foreign policy team until pretty recently what their policy was in Afghanistan, it would essentially have been what Obama was saying in 2009, which was we should fight our way to the negotiating table. Now, Trump's doing it with 
what a tenth of the number of troops that Obama had at his disposal at that point. But ultimately, it's it's largely the same. Until a couple weeks ago, Trump was asked uh, at an event about his policy, and he said, "We don't want to talk with the Taliban." And said, "We're going to destroy the whole insurgency." I don't know if his team took him seriously when he said that, but the Taliban certainly did, and they responded. I mean, do you have a sense of what their actual policy is and and if those statements had a real impact on the potential for future talks? I think their their policy is um, what you described, that they it, it has the same contradictions um, that that we've seen in both the Bush and Obama years where it, there's an acknowledgement that outside of the president anyway, that the war can't be won on the battlefield and that we're fighting them to the negotiating table. But then the only kind of line of policy that is resourced to the max is the, is the military side. I think they mm-hmm. see themselves as being more, you know, sort of consistent and putting pressure on Pakistan by suspending aid, by uh, declaring, um, as Vice President Pence did, I think, that we will stay in Afghanistan until the last terrorist is gone forever and that somehow this combination of toughness on Pakistan and resolve yeah. will cause the Taliban to realize that they that they should negotiate. Now, I, I, I'm skeptical about that. I don't see the, the record to support that hypothesis, but that's what yeah. they, I think, see themselves doing. You mentioned their cutting off of aid to the Pakistanis. I mean, they, they I think in, in early January, they said they would cut off security assistance to Pakistan in an effort to isolate them and change their support for some of the violent proxies we talked about early, like the Haqqani Network or LET. Do you have any sense of whether that decision has been effective or how it has been received within the Pakistani system? Yeah, I don't think it's it's been effective yet, and it may never be. We sanctioned Pakistan for a decade, um, even more severely than this, over their nuclear program, and it didn't change their conduct then. And in many ways, they're in a more resilient position now because their most important ally is China, always has been, and China is obviously a much bigger country with a with many more financial resources uh, than it had in the 1990s. So. I see Pakistan nesting inside their relationship with China, trying to draw other regional governments into um, their alliance with China at the expense of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know you publicly shaming Pakistan is not a great strategy, and and uh, it's only going to you know provoke deeper nationalism in an already fiercely nationalistic uh, country, and especially in the army, and. You know, I, I think they see themselves as kind of countering the American pressure primarily from the strength of their relationship with China. But also they'll look to Iran and to Central Asian governments, even to Russia, none of which really wants the United States to have a long-term military presence in Afghanistan as a, as a counter to whatever pressure the, the Trump administration puts on them. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that might make them nervous, and you can see this in the headlines, the Pakistanis, I mean, is – you know, they don't want to be illegitimate in the international system. And whenever they've been threatened with the possibility of being listed, for example, as a state sponsor of terrorism in one regime or another, uh, they've really scrambled to try to avoid that. And, you know, China protects them at the UN against anything of that type. But if the US were to really go after, you know, generals and impose travel sanctions or that sort of mm-hmm. thing, you know that that might rattle them a little bit. I, I I'm not sure it would have a very healthy result. You know they may seek to escalate through the Haqqanis in Afghanistan in response to this pressure. I, I don't know how to interpret those 
horrible mass casualty attack that followed the announcement of the suspension of security aid. Maybe they were indigenous and unrelated, but it wouldn't be unusual for ISI to try to respond to pressure with pressure of its own. Yeah, I, I, I noticed that as well. I mean, I've been hesitant to sort of hang that escalation on the Trump administration's policy decision because I just haven't seen any evidence tying the two, but certainly the timing is is notable. Yeah, I agree with that. So I mean, we've, we've talked about the structural weirdness here, that we're fighting a war in Afghanistan, and yet there's a safe haven in Pakistan where terrorists are allowed to plot and plan and train and get support from the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence. Go back to 2009, the Situation Room, Obama is in there with his top generals talking about what to do, uh, whether to send tens of thousands of more troops and how to address the war. Vice President Biden essentially pushed for taking out troops, setting up a more robust drone strategy to take out terrorists on a case-by-case basis. Do you think that's the future of our posture in Afghanistan and that the drone strategy has been effective enough to manage that threat? Yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, in hindsight, I'm sure uh, President Obama would would go back to that situation room and probably make a different decision. I mean, it was a really painful situation he was in because um, he inherited a war that was going south. And the first thing that happens when he becomes president is a bunch of generals come in and say, you have to send troops now. We've got an election this summer. We've got to, got to get moving. Biden was one of those, you know, who cautioned against being pushed by the military, but the timeline was what it was. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think, you know, he he was describing a version of a counterterrorism first strategy that is more or less what we've got now. Um, and there wasn't an advise and assist component of it available at that time because the Afghan security forces hadn't been built up. Um, and so, the other rationale for going in big was to hold the war long enough to build Afghan security forces that could then be assisted at a lower level of, of military aid, which is, again, kind of where we are now. We we function as their air force. They do all the fighting on the front lines for the most part. And we now are back in direct combat with the Islamic State element that's popped up in eastern Afghanistan more recently. But, you know, the, the part of Biden's uh, argument that really – stands out when you go back and kind of narrate the blow by blow of how we got where we are is his emphasis on Pakistan. You know, I mean, I don't think he quite knows what to do with his insight, but he does have that insight. And he, you know, he goes off to Kabul early on and meets with Hamid Karzai and Karzai says to everyone who visits him, you know, you got to get after ISI, the wars in Pakistan, put more pressure on them. And Biden replies, Mr. President, Pakistan is 50 times more important to the United States than Afghanistan. That went well, I bet. Yeah, that really <laughs> didn't go very well. But but it was, you know, it had it had the ring of truth about it. Right. But the problem was that we didn't have a policy that actually was structured to recognize that fact. So that was a thread that he couldn't tie off. Yeah. Or if we did, it was classified at such a level that we couldn't discuss it because it all revolved around a nuclear weapons program in Pakistan that scared the shit out of everybody. Yeah, exactly. My last question for you uh, is probably the hardest one. Is is there any sense how this great experiment in Afghanistan ends? I mean, are we destined to end up on the list of countries like Russia and the British who are humbled by this country? Or is there a better diplomatic outcome that you can see? Well, I think we're already on the list. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, <fair. laughs> uh, so I think either 
either it ends in tears in another uh, long civil war in which you know more Afghans uh, suffer than already have, and it could be a terrible war. I mean, the one in the 90s was awful, and now there's so many more weapons in the country, and uh, the regional kind of equation is uh, no better now than it was in the 90s. So that is a deterrent, uh, I think, to a lot of Afghans. They don't want to relive that, and and mm-hmm. they are. One thing that Pakistan has contributed to Afghanistan through interference is it has brought Afghans together. I mean, there is a strain of nationalism in Afghanistan, especially among young people in the cities. That's very powerful. Um, it's undermined by ethnic polarization and factionalism and, and a constitutional crisis in the government. But there is a there there in Afghanistan. And, you know, the young men who volunteer to join the army for, you know, in this war, they, they're still fighting. And I think there is the possibility of an active approach to the neighborhood that I don't see, you know, a beautiful peace bargain, you know, like in Colombia or in what the Obama administration negotiated with Cuba. But I could see the reduction of violence, the gradual incorporation of more Taliban in um, politics, both formally and informally. There's already a lot of Afghan to Afghan kind of truce negotiations that go on because, you know, they have their own war apart from the international community's version of it. And um, so, yeah, we the idea would be to make it much less necessary for us to have 15,000 troops and to internationalize the counterterrorism mission that will be around for another 10 or 20 years at least. That's an important point that I hear you make often, which is that uh, not every diplomatic effort ends with a grand ceremony and everything fixed. It's a grinding, you know, piece by piece work that cleaves off little pieces and factions and slowly reduces violence and helps the population and frankly, everyone involved. Exactly. That's the way the world works. You know, um, once yeah. in a while you, you you can see an opening to do something more complete. And But um, especially in a civil war like this, that's a reason to get up and do the work because yep. uh, you, you can make a difference. Yeah. Just have to try. This is one of the most complicated issues that any president will face probably for the next decade or two. I I don't know that anyone in academia or journalism knows more about Afghanistan or Pakistan than Steve Call. His book, Director at S, The CIA and America's Secret Wars in Afghanistan and Pakistan, is available for purchase right now. You should buy it. You will learn more from that book than I did in four years at the White House. So check it out. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to Pod Save the World. If you like the show, rate us and review us in the iTunes store. It means a lot to me and it helps people find all these substantive conversations that you've enjoyed. Thanks, guys. In this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.
Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.